this works. Yep, that should be the uh, advance, and then that's the pointer if you need it. The top one. Yeah. Okay. Is this is this on now? Yeah, yeah, that should be good, and I'll just. Oh, the um, the questions. I don't have them on the. I usually. Is Cherie still here? Um, I don't know. Because I have them in on print to hand out at the end. Can I give them to you? The three questions. You're on paper. Oh, okay. At the end. All right, perfect. Do you want to start handing them out during the lecture? Or well, no, they might answer them during oh, okay. the lecture. I don't oh, okay. know. We'll do them at the end. Remember, so remind good. me, remind me. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and move on. Uh, there, there is a handout here if you want it, similar to the slides without the pictures, okay? All the good stuff. So at the end, we'll hand out... Uh, the slides uh, and also the, uh, lecture my uh, my lecture questions are on paper, so you can not take them with you, but hand yeah. it in. So you so can read it. Okay, there's three. Okay, so today I'm going to be speaking about uh, two different topics, but they're sort of combined because uh, each is about 30 minutes, so it comes to a nice lecture, and it's about 50 or 60 minutes, and it's something that's probably not discussed in much detail among uh, among other lectures you get. I'm going to discuss the pulmonary aspiration syndromes of aspiration pneumonitis and aspiration pneumonia, which aren't the same thing, and then acute mediastinitis, which is things like Borhoff syndrome and so forth, uh, very uncommon in the ED. First, let me present a case, and this uh, is an 18-year-old healthy male. Um, he's a college student. He's brought to the ED by the EMS people after uh, becoming lethargic after binge drinking of alcohol at fraternity party. Um, like many of you might have done this when you were uh, college students. Uh, paramedics said he vomited a large amount of liquid gastric contents in the ambulance. He turned blue and developed a lot of wheezing. In the ED, he arrives, he's lethargic. His eyes or pupils are reactive to light. Uh, muscles are okay. He's in respiratory distress. He's hypoxic. He doesn't have any external signs of injury. He's moving all extremities. He responds to painful stimuli. He doesn't respond well to verbal stimuli. So you give him oxygen, you suction, then you do endotracheal intubation using RSI. You got that in. His portable x-ray is then done, showing your ET tubes in good position. But he has infiltrates in bilateral lower and mid-lung areas. So you assume you have aspirated and developed some aspiration pneumonia, or is it aspiration pneumonitis? Those are two different entities. So here's a question, and this isn't one of the questions for the end of the talk, talk either. Um, which urgent action should you take within the next few hours, the next six hours, uh, either starting in the ED or maybe in the ICU? Should you place a pulmonary artery catheter to detect alcohol-induced left ventricular dysfunction with pulmonary edema? <laughs> Should you treat with IV antibiotics to cover mouth floor anaerobes? Should you treat with IV corticosteroids to prevent gastric acid-induced chemical injury, which is like a flash burn of the lungs? Are none of the above or all of the above? D, the answer, based on the medical literature and the consensus of experts, because sometimes there's no studies, is D, none of the above. None of the above is correct, okay? Uh, B, though, is commonly done, but if you read the literature, it says never to do it, and your attendings in ICU would probably say not. Uh, and the others don't help you. So here's the second case, 46-year-old homeless schizophrenic alcoholic male, typical ED patient we might have. Uh, he complains of coughing for five weeks with fevers, low-grade, foul-smelling pyrrole and sputum. You examine him, and uh, except for a uh, temperature of uh, 38.2, he doesn't look too ill. He's chronically ill. His teeth are in very bad condition, like many of our patients. 
he smokes and drinks, and he doesn't really have underlying diseases like diabetes. His white count's high with neutrophilia, his sed rate's 72, and you got your sed rate back before your x-ray. <laughs> x-ray <laughs> shows, essentially, this is a typical anaerobic bacterial lung abscess. So the first patient had the syndrome of aspiration pneumonitis, which is a uh, gastric acid induced injury, a chemical injury, not an infection. It's a chemical like a flash burn of the lungs. The second patient has aspiration of purulent oropharyngeal contents, especially with bad teeth, et cetera, like that. Or maybe he's been drunk a lot and aspirating small amounts of pus from his mouth and slowly developed an aspiration pneumonia with very low-grade uh, organisms not likely to cause acute pneumonia, but they've but they're necrotizing, and so a few weeks later, he comes in with this foul-smelling sputum, and he has an anaerobic bacterial lung abscess. So what is aspiration? We need to know the definition. It means you've inhaled oropharyngeal secretions, or it could be food particles that are in your oropharynx, or gastric contents into the larynx and lower respiratory tract. So what happens after the aspiration depends on whether it's oropharyngeal secretions or it's gastric acid. They're entirely different entities. So aspiration pneumonitis is counted as a chemical injury caused by inhalation into your lungs, lower bronchial, bronchial tree, of sterile gastric contents, which are acid. Okay? Aspiration pneumonia is really infection, so pneumonia, whereas pneumonitis is inflammation from a non-infection. Pneumonia is aspiration pneumonia, you've, in, you've inhaled sort of infected oropharyngeal secretions colonized with pathogenic bacteria, and they've caused an infection. And these really are two distinct clinical entities, although you're going to see there's some overlap. For example, in patients who take high doses of PPIs, their stomach is colonized with bacteria, so if they aspirate, and they don't have that much stomach acid, so they could aspirate and get a lot of fluid in their lungs, they may get bacterial pneumonia more easily. So... Uh, here's a few key points, and I'll uh, mention this earlier for the millennial generation who, who doze off right away. Here's the key points here, and I'll come back to the key points later. So aspiration pneumonitis and aspiration pneumonia are really there. You should think of them as two distinct entities, and you could treat initial treatment in the first few hours, like in the ED or the ICU, is really different. Uh, infectious complications after a witness aspiration of gastric contents is very uncommon. Even if the patient gets really sick with ARDS, they usually recover. And it's rarely that you ever need urgent uh, administration of antimicrobials. They actually don't help. They may actually harm, and I'll show you how that might happen later. So uh, death after aspirating gastric contents, even large volumes, is very uncommon. You'll see in the clinical series of thousands of patients, it hardly ever happens that they die of the chemical injury. If they get proper care in an ICU, they usually get over it within about three days even though they may be near death from ARDS, so long as they get proper care, they usually survive with no sequelae if they're healthy, let's say a healthy college student who aspirates. Uh, unless, this is when they die, they aspirate with their vomit, it's they have large food particles, and they get upper airway or tracheal obstruction from food. If you look at the people who are healthy who die of aspirating vomitus, they have big food particles stuck in that weren't removed. Okay? So let's look at the infection, aspiration pneumonia, is extremely common in the elderly, especially those who are demented. It's the most common cause of death in persons with dementia. Um, and in younger patients who have ongoing swallowing difficulties, they could have developmental delay or some neurologic conditions that interfere with proper swallowing and, and uh, getting rid of secretions, handling secretions. 
Those are the ones that get aspiration pneumonia, younger people, okay? So there's several other aspiration syndromes. I'm not going to mention them uh, much at all, but lung abscess is a result of the aspiration pneumonia, so it occurs weeks later. Uh, airway obstruction by food. Uh, then diffuse aspiration bronchiolitis is actually fairly common in older people uh, who aspirate oropharyngeal secretions, as well as uh, having, uh, they may have swallowing difficulties, G-tubes, they may aspirate <coughs> stomach contents repeatedly, small amounts, and they get this strange bronchiolitis pattern on a CAT scan that a CT radiologist sometimes can tell you that I think the patient's been aspirating for a long time because of the appearance of these tree buds or something on the CT scans. And then uh, people who use a lot of uh, <coughs> mineral oils, laxatives, can have low-grade, uh, who have swallowing difference, can have low-grade aspirations for months and months and get this unusual kind of lipoid pneumonia. And then if you have this damage going on for a long time, you can get chronic fibrosis. So which syndrome you're going to get after aspiration depends on a few things. The amount of material, the nature of the material, like is it acid or is it food particles? The amount is also dependent too. It could change the outcome. How frequently it happens and what's the host response? For example, uh, why don't we all, we all will aspirate small amounts of oral pharyngeal secretion while we sleep, yet healthy people do, yet we're not developing pneumonia all the time. It's because we have protective mechanisms like cilia and coughing and things like that get rid of it. So uh, some people just don't, they have defective protective mechanisms, and so they get aspiration pneumonia, the infection. Um, so aspiration pneumonia, the infection itself, is actually an important cause of death and serious illness in nursing home patients. It also occurs in hospitalized patients because they're debilitated and usually old, and they're often frequently misdiagnosed and poorly treated. So some of the problems that happen with aspiration is that you fail to distinguish the aspiration pneumonitis, the chemical injury from the infection, pneumonia, okay? Uh, and sometimes you consider all the pulmonary complications are infections. You're worried about that and not worried about the foreign par particles, the food or the acid that's in their respiratory tree, as opposed to just the, uh, the bacteria. Uh, you fail to recognize the spectrum of pathogens, and so patients who, uh, have or out of the hospital, never go to the hospital on an antibiotic. So if they have aspiration pneumonia, with, they usually get very low-grade normal oral flora that's pretty easy to treat with penicillin or clindamycin or augmentin or unison or something like that. Where, but if they've have, they could have a healthcare-associated infection. If they've been in and out of the hospital, in and out of the clinics, been on antibiotics, they get colonized with gram-negative rods like Klebsiella, MRSA, other Staph aureus. And so when they get aspiration pneumonia, they get really they get really sick from those bacteria which need more broad-spectrum antibiotics and have a higher death rate. Uh, so a lot of the patients we see with aspiration pneumonia from nursing homes are all considered healthcare-associated, even if they have never been in a hospital, because they're, they're really colonized with all these resistant germs. So the treatment is really different, different antibiotics than if they're in a nursing home versus coming from home. They've never been in a hospital or been to uh, an antibiotics. Uh, there's also a misconception that the episode of aspiration, say vomiting uh, and aspirating gastric contents, must be witnessed for it to be diagnosed. It's well described that there's silent aspiration, which means the patient's actually aspirating large amounts of, and they aspirate a large amount of gastric contents, and the only, the, there's no symptoms. The only thing you realize is they get hypoxic and a pulmonary inflate develops in a few hours, but they never had coughing or choking or anything like that. 
So silent aspiration is pretty common. <coughs> uh, if you look at cases of uh, aspiration pneumonia, about up to maybe 15% of all cases of CAP are considered aspiration pneumonia, and it's usually the elderly. And as again, it said, it's the most common cause of death in patients with dysphagia due to neurologic disorder. So it's not just the elderly with dementia, but it could be a younger person with ALS. Their most common cause of death is aspiration pneumonia. Interesting, um, if you diagnose a patient in the ED as aspiration pneumonia on your final diagnosis, they have, they have risk factors for it, you, that patient is excluded from auditing for, guide, for uh, having to follow the CAP guidelines from the feds. So you're out of the hook. If you made a mistake, you're, it doesn't matter what antibiotic you get, if there's a delay. Uh, in fact, it's excluded from, from auditing. Okay. Uh, in addition, uh, on our own pneumonia pathway, if you read one of the two, maybe it's the first or second page, in the lower right-hand corner, aspiration pneumonia, that says this does not apply to aspiration pneumonia. Remember, because some of the treatments are different. You want to treat more aggressively for organisms and not so much atypicals or Legionella. Uh, so let's look at aspiration pneumonitis, the acid injury. So it's acute lung injury. It's like a chemical burn or flash burn of the lungs after inhalation of regurgitated gastric contents, which in most cases are really acidy, unless you're on high-dose PPIs and you have a full stomach. So this generally occurs uh, not so much in elderly people with dementia, but more in people who chronically have disturbances of consciousness uh, are also a problem with chronic with swallowing, too. Okay? So it actually, younger people with uh, drug overdoses of sedative hypnotics, about 10% of those who are admitted get aspiration pneumonitis from regurgitation of acid contents, even if it's not witnessed. Um, so as I said, about 10% of patients hospitalized over a drug overdose will develop this chemical injury. And uh, death with anesthesia is really rare, but about 10 to 30% of deaths associated with anesthesia are due to aspirating gastric acid. And if you look at series, though, the ones who actually die of it, they aspirated food particles, and they had an emergency operation, so they couldn't be NPO. And, so that, and the big, big pieces of meat from their stomach are obstructing their, their airway, as opposed to just a chemical injury. So uh, aspiration pneumonitis was first uh, described by a New York obstetrician named Curtis Lester Mendelssohn. And this was, then it's called Mendelssohn syndrome. So in addition to just describing it in, in thousands of patients, he actually did a lot of tests later in laboratory animals. He was an <coughs> academic uh, doctor in New York. He was an obstetrician. So he reported uh, his experience uh, over about 10 or 15 years, he reported in 1946, of patients, there were over 44,000 non-fasting OB patients undergoing nitrous oxide or ether anesthesia administered by face masks for operative deliveries. So usually, and nowadays they have, they have an endotracheal tube, then they just did face mask, to, and they would have some RT there if they had those in those days, maybe suction them, but they could easily aspirate, and they were non-fasting. And so we found only 50, 66 patients, which is a very low percentage, way under 1%, described what they later called Mendelssohn syndrome. So usually during the procedure, they aspirate stomach contents, and they have the sudden onset of shortness of breath, cyanosis, wheezing, and hypoxia. Uh, and um, of these, many of these 66 became critically ill. They didn't have ICUs then, but they, they had, became critically ill 
but the only one, but they all survived without sequelae except the two who died who had their airways obstructed by solid food particles, okay? So they have this bad acid injury. These are healthy young women. They all look really, like really critical. They're getting ARDS, and this is in the pre-ICU era. They all survived without sequelae. That's what he says, except for these two who had the uh, food in their, in their uh, trachea. It's interesting that his, his studies led to the rules for having people NPO after midnight before elective surgeries. His studies changed the whole system of what we do things. People would just operate on people non-fasting, didn't know it made a difference. But now, because of his studies, um, this study and some others he did, on, especially in laboratory animals, especially like rats or rabbits, uh, studying gastric aspiration of acid, they changed the whole hospital system to make people like NPO after midnight before procedures. So he, he and some others did a lot of experiments with animals, and it's mainly rabbits, which are a good model. Rabbits and pigs are a good model for humans for laboratory experiments. Um, so he introduced uh, gastric <coughs> contents, uh, I think, of rabbits, maybe it was people, too, into lungs of rabbits, and he could produce severe pneumonitis. They was really indistinguishable from that that was caused by equal amount of very acid hydrochloric acid, 0.1 normal. And it turns out if he, acid, if he neutralized the, the acid before, the gastric acid, before he put it in there, there, there was really no pulmonary injury. Okay, so it's the acid that's causing it. So how much acid do you need? They uh, determined based on what happened in rabbits and then going back to how much volume in people, it's not very much. If you have a pH less than 2.5, which is typical in uh, normal people who have empty stomachs, so they're, they're very acid in their stomach, less than 2.5, if you aspirate uh, more than 20 or 25 mLs in an adult, that's a pretty small amount. That can lead to this severe chemical injury. So the, if, the, uh, if the pH is higher, like 3 or something, you may need a lot more volume to produce this. Maybe not at all. Maybe it has to be under 2.5. So you can see aspirating a very amount of stomach, which are, that's like only like this much in a cup, right? A, few c, a couple cc's there, or 25 mLs. But the patients who got the, uh, also got bad pulmonary damage if they had food particles in there. So it's a different entity if they have a lot of, if they have a full stomach that's undigested food with all these meat or whatever it's in there or string beans or something or <laughs> whatever, big particles that are undigested and they all get stuck in your trachea, okay? As opposed to aspirating, as opposed to aspirating oatmeal or something, okay? <laughs> so there's three possible so let's say someone aspirates their gastric acid contents. There's three things that happen. They can, three things that happen. Uh, they can have a rapid recovery. That is, they just cough and choke for a few minutes, hypoxia for a few minutes, and they recover, and there's nothing on an x-ray. It doesn't show anything. This recover. You can also develop severe ARDS, like non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, uh, uh, and you get bilateral infiltrates. Periohyalurus all over, severe hypoxemia, usually not hypercarbia, and then later, occasionally you get bacterial superinfection. It's very uncommon if there's an acid injury because you're putting sterile, if the stomach's really acid, there's no bacteria alive in it, so there's no bacteria down there. Um, bacterial superinfection would present with an infection days later. So these people can look really sick about four to six hours. So at first time, you get first one or two hours, you get a caustic action of the acid on the cells, but then it looks worse. Four to six hours later, you get infiltration of white cells, so you degranulate and you produce a lot of inflammation. That's when you look really sick, but there's still no infection. 
Uh, it's been studied in humans and animals where they are aspirating their secretions and they don't find any bacteria. Uh, so at this point, you don't need any antibiotics. Uh, now, they usually improve here uh, within a day or two. Most people, if they get proper care without antibiotics, and they usually get over it. The ones who get bacterial pneumonia start to get worse again about three, three or four days later. When they get a fever, period secretions, coughing again, that's when they get a bacterial superinfection, but it's pretty uncommon. <coughs> so essentially, bacterial infection does not play any really any important role in the early stage of lung injury after aspirating gastric contents. And we don't really know the actual incidence, but it seems really low from the case series that are reported. Now, it turns out that we have so many people who don't have or ever have an acid stomach. They're taking PPIs all the time. Their pH is maybe four in their stomach. Bacteria grow in their stomach. And so that's a different entity. I suppose if you aspirate, if you know somebody's on high dose PPIs and they aspirate their stomach contents, uh, you maybe, maybe you can make a case they need some antibiotics, but it's not clear that they do at that point. They might just have a higher chance of getting an infection three or four days later. Uh, if the patient has a bastroparesis or small bowel obstruction, they're actually more likely to, to have bacteria growing in their stomach. So they're more likely to get bacteria down there, but it doesn't mean they're going to get an infection from it. So what about the risk of getting an acid injury, aspirating gastric contents after a drug overdose? So there's been a large retrospective study in Australia published in Critical Care Medicine 2004. They had over 4,500 admissions for poisoning to this hospital. They were mostly sedative hypnotics, by the way. This is probably before the instance where they had crystal meth a lot. So only a few, like 1.6% had what they felt was definite aspiration pneumonitis, that is, a chemical injury. And the ones who got it seemed to be older, have a GCS, which was less than 15, uh, spontaneous vomiting and delayed presentation and with tricyclic poisoning, which was probably more common in these days. Probably this, go, this series goes way back for many couple decades to get this many patients. At one time, tricyclic overdoses were a very common cause of overdose admissions to the hospital. Really, we hardly see that anymore. Um, so there, look at the mortality. When they got the aspiration pneumonitis, the mortality went way up and the length of stay was up at the... Uh, yeah, but we don't really know that what they died of infection or the, or the ARDS. We're not really sure. They just reported a case series. It wasn't a prospective study. Now, what about after a seizure? If a patient has a seizure, paramedics bring them in or they have another seizure in front, seizure patient has a seizure in front of us, what's the chance that person with the seizure is going to have aspirated gastric contents? Let's say we didn't see them aspirate gastric. They didn't, we didn't see them vomit and aspirate. The chance of having it is minimal except in one condition. So these people studied like hundreds and hundreds of patients uh, in this, uh, I think this was also Australia or Canada, one of those two. They had, it was a big unit where they would, even patients who came in with a seizure and were discharged home, they were following up carefully to see if they got any kind of lung injury. You can see that of the uh, outpatients, hardly any. Of the inpatients who actually witnessed seizures in the hospital, hardly any. But the ones who got aspiration pneumonitis, which was manifested by a pulmonary infiltrate and hypoxemia, and may or may not have symptoms, were the ones who were developmentally delayed. So they had problems, they had pre-existing problems with swallowing and clearing secretions. Those are the ones who got the pneumonitis, okay? So you can see the risk of developing a, uh, 
an acid injury after our routine seizure patients is almost zero. If we didn't witness them aspirating, a lot of vomitus, which they sometimes do, uh, the chance of getting an aspiration pneumonitis is like close to zero. But if they're like uh, developing delayed neuro chronic neurologic issues, then the chance is high. So aspiration uh, pneumonitis, the chemical injury actually can be clinically silent, as I said before. So someone can actually say there's demented or something, or, or drug overdose, they could actually have regurgitated acid. They didn't vomit out so you don't see it. They're regurgitating it into their stomach, into their lungs, say a large amount, large amount meaning over like 30 mLs, which isn't very, very much. They have no symptoms or signs like choking, gasping, tachycardia, but they drop their oxygen and they don't infiltrate. So you see silent aspirations common. So the fact you didn't witness somebody under observation for a long time, aspirating doesn't mean they haven't aspirated while you're watching them. You just didn't see it happen and they had no symptoms. Um, so let's look at the infection, aspiration pneumonia, not the chemical injury, pneumonitis. So we all aspirate small amounts of oropharyngeal secretions all the time, usually when we're sleeping, but we don't get pneumonia because we can clear our secretions. The patients who get pneumonia at high risk here are those with pre-existing swallowing issues, so especially after stroke, gastric dysmotility, if they have poor oral hygiene and the presence of teeth. So if you have no teeth, you're protected, although uh, it can occur. So <laughs> some of our people uh, that we see probably have no teeth. They're probably protected from aspiration pneumonia. But it's been well studied by dentists, though, that if, they, if, if you examine your derelict, alcoholic derelict and uh, they have no teeth and they have pneumonia, look at their tongue. It's, it usually have a coated tongue just loaded with bacteria. So it's dentists advise those people who are dentalists to like brush their tongue a lot because they can be, have layers and layers of billions of bacteria in their tongue and they can aspirate those secretions. And you generally don't witness this aspiration since it's a small amount. So uh, you can never really t tell whether a patient really has aspiration pneumonia or just community-acquired pneumonia. But you have to look at the pattern, uh, especially a low-grade pneumonia that didn't have marked symptoms where, they, where it started, like pneumococcal pneumonia, it might be aspiration. They have a risk factor, like stroke or swallowing issues. Also, you look at the segment of the lung. Uh, if they, when somebody aspirates uh, secretions, it goes to the dependent portion. So if somebody's lying down and they aspirate, it's going to certain sections of the lung. If they're, st if they're sitting up, it's going to other ones. And so you can often tell by what part of the lung's involved uh, by determining whether, you can help tell whether it's aspiration. For example, a supine patient, it often goes to the posterior, posterior segments of the upper lobes or apical segments of the lower lobes. If they're upright, and it goes to the basal segments of the lower lobes. And the course of pneumonia is typical like CAP, except that it may be more low-grade and have a slower presentation, especially if they're low-grade oral anaerobes, which aren't very pathogenic. And you can often get abscesses because these organisms can cause necrosis. Here's an example of a lung abscess due to Klebsiella. So uh, actually, many it's been shown many people who are alcoholics who never go to hospitals are colonized in the oropharyngeal secretions with Klebsiella pneumoniae, as well as their own oral anaerobes. And so they can get a, a necrotizing pneumonia from Klebsiella mixed with the other pathogens, so they can get a lung abscess. So uh, uh, Klebsiella, you may not need to treat with, you may need to treat with more anti-gram negative bacteria. And usually they, it's easy to grow that from the sputum and sometimes the blood. Uh, here's an example of a patient with a stroke who got a uh, pneumonia, which felt to be aspiration because it's located in the, I think the basilar posterior segments of the lung, which will be dependent, okay? A quick question. 
Yeah. With the, the people that lung abscesses, are antibiotics <coughs> uh, sufficient, or do you need to do like uh, higher drainage? Or uh, they're generally sufficient, but they need long courses in the hospital. So we're not going to talk about the treatment of it, but generally. Uh, you could treat them with IV uh, unison or clindamycin, one or the other, uh, and they'll usually almost all recover, but they may need several weeks of, like 10 days in the hospital and like three more weeks later. Um, if they don't recover, you can try IR drainage or, or bronchoscopy, it often helps too. The other thing is though, if they're at risk for more pathogens like gram-negatives, you really need to treat, like you may need vancomycin and zosin, okay, yes. Uh, do you just differentiate based on history for risk for fungal, more of a fungal ball and not so much an air fluid level? Um, yeah, well, these people have very purulent sputum that smells bad. So with fungal disease or TB, usually not. So you can also look at location for things like TB would usually be more in the uh, apical segments. Okay. And so, I mean, you could have people at risk for TB who could get TB out there, but that's peripheral at cavity. It's probably unlikely. Uh, here's another aspiration pneumonia showing, I guess the patient died or had a lobectomy, but it shows it's supposed to show it's very necrotic tissue in the lung. It's necrosis. The tissue's dead. Uh, so here's this little summary slide taken from an article by one of the experts in this, Malt Merrick, who's at, in Virginia somewhere. Uh, the different features of the chemical injury, aspiration pneumonitis from the pneumonia, the infection, um, you can see one is really an acute lung injury, one's really in response to the bacteria. With the acid injury, it's initially sterile, but you can get bacterial infection several days later, not within one or two days. Um, chief predisposing factor to the pneumonitis is depressed level of consciousness. You can't handle your secretions, like drug overdoses or uh, anesthesia, you know, without intubation, that kind of thing. And then the predisposing factor for aspiration pneumonia is dysphagia and gastrogus motility. Usually the elderly, actually uh, young people are are more likely to get the aspiration pneumonitis than the old people. And uh, the aspiration may be witnessed. It's usually not witnessed with the infection. And uh, depressed level of consciousness is pretty common here where it may not be. They may be very conscious, alert with aspiration pneumonia, predisposing factors, but their problem is they're, uh, they're demented or they can't handle their secretions. And aspiration pneumonitis uh, can be clinically silent, very important. All they have, they have infiltrates and hypoxia, yes. Uh, maybe I wasn't listening, but um, it says that they're rarely anaerobic. Did you already say that? Well, um, yeah, so uh, this doctor is a uh, pulmonary doctor. And so he, uh, he has done research that he favors that, that the anaerobes are frequently present, but they don't cause disease, and it's the aerobes or the it's actual facultative aerobes. Anaerobes, which are like staph and E. coli or whatever, are causing disease. Uh, the ID societies disagree with that, so I shouldn't have shown his slide with that in it. But he has the only good slide on this. But the, uh, there's big disagreements among the ID people versus some pulmonary people, not all, saying that the some pulmonary people say you don't need to cover the anaerobes, but the ID people say you do, uh, because the ID people did a lot of studies with transtracheal aspirates, showing a lot of anaerobes, but they did them late in the course, and it might not be applied to the the acute course that Merrick was studying as a pulmonary specialist. The but I think you should, well, it's easy to cover anaerobes, and almost everything, when you give Zosin or Unison, Clinda, we're covering anaerobes, or even Cefetaxime covers more than half the anaerobes, even though it's not an anaerobic drug, or Ceftriaxone, too. Uh, so, uh, 
problems with management here is, uh, well, what you should do for management, you should, if you witness aspiration of gastric contents, you need to obviously do suctioning. You may need endotracheal uh, intubation. Uh, and it's not recommended by experts to give antibiotics right away. Even if the patient has fever, leukocytosis, or pulmonary infiltrates within a few hours, that's the chemical injury. So even though it's hard for people not to give antibiotics, and so it's commonly done, you can't find any, any expert who says you should do it. Based on animal and human studies, you should just wait because the majority do not develop a bacterial infection. So what happens when you have somebody who aspirates, gets an infiltrate, hypoxia, minimum to the ICU, and you give them antibiotics they don't need? They're in the ICU, they're intubated, and they didn't have an infection to begin with, you're causing them to get a bad infection because they're going to colonize with VRE, MRSA, uh, ESBL, E. coli, so they're going to get some other bad infection that's harder to treat. So you're better off staying away from the antibiotics so you prove they have a bacterial infection. Um, so one of the bad things about antibiotics is it for resistant organisms in patients with chemical pneumonitis. Now you may want to give early antibiotics. This is just theoretical. If they have some condition associated with bacterial colonization of the gastric contents, high-dose PPIs or SBO, it isn't really proven, though. Or, and if it fails to resolve in 48 hours. I'm almost done with the aspiration pneumonia part here. So then if it goes on worse, they may do, do bronchoscopy. You wouldn't do that in the ED. They would obtain cultures using protected specimen brush or bronchiolar lavage. And they would probably stop antibiotics if the cultures are negative and just say it's a chemical injury. And what about steroids? Um, do not use steroids. There have actually been two uh, studies of steroids for aspiration pneumonitis, the chemical injury from acid. They're all pretty old. Uh, but in some people have recommended giving steroids. There isn't much evidence for it except in animals because it helps inflammation in, in, this, in acid injuries. But um, the randomized trial was done. These are done in like the 1980s or 1970s. One was randomized like 60 people, and they had like old people and young people mixed together with different causes. Uh, the other one was a case control study. Both had inconclusive results. They didn't show it was better beneficial or not. They thought it was beneficial in a few patients, not in the others, and so they didn't really correlate. So animal models, though, show that in animal models, steroids don't seem to work. But what does help in animal models is giving some of these other drugs, inhaled beta agonist, pentoxifilin, which is more of a, I think, an arterial dilator, and a platelet drugs and omega-3 fatty acids. That acid, that's in laboratory animals, so that's never been studied in humans to know. I don't see any harm from <coughs> omega-3 fatty acids, so maybe you should give that in the ED to some of these people. But the other ones, I don't know. Bale, bale agonists, that's something we can do. It doesn't seem like it'd be harmful, right? Uh, so uh, antibiotics are rarely indicated, or definitely indicated for, for the infection part, definitely indicated. Uh, and you probably should, I believe, in giving anaerobic drugs in addition to covering hospital flora. Uh, some pulmonary specialists don't, and I've listed a few antibiotics there. Uh, none of these except maybe the quinolone ones would cover any of the atypicals, which are not usual from aspiration pneumonia. So a few key points. I showed this slide earlier. These are two different clinical entities, but there are some overlap. Uh, infectious complications after witness gastric aspirated gastric contents is uncommon. You don't really need to give antibiotics in the ED for this. If someone's giving the ICU, I let them do that later. Uh, death after aspirating gastric contents is very uncommon, even though the people can look really sick. The ones who die usually have food particles stuck in their trachea. Uh, and 
Aspiration pneumonia, the infection, as opposed to the chemical injury, is more common in the elderly, patients with some pre-existing swallowing problems, dementia, or stroke. So now we're going to go on to acute mediastinitis. So this is a little shorter. This is a very rare disease, no matter where you are. Um, and it's even rarer in the, in the ED. But you're probably going to miss the case, because it's so rare and has, the symptoms are going to be unusual. It may be devastating and life-threatening. It may have a sudden onset that's in an hour or two, they're really sick, or it may have a low-grade onset, depending on how it got there. So it used to be almost always fatal, but now the mortality rate is quite a bit lower, 10 to 15 percent. Um, the more the former, the most common causes in the past. Let me see if I got my case. Oh shoot, I missed my case. Oh, I had a case presentation. I think I can present it. So there's a there's a case, a true case. Uh, Fifty, uh, I think he's a 51 year old naval officer. Um, he had been eating uh, a big dinner. He was celebrating something, maybe his naval victory, uh, or something. I don't know. <laughs> he was he was eating a big dinner, and he started to feel sick. So he tried to make himself vomit by uh, taking a lot of beer and uh, some anti some emetics. So while he was vomiting, he got the sudden onset of severe uh, pain in his chest. He started sweating, and he called his doctor, who came to his house. Doctor made a house call. Uh, this, it was a very famous doctor made a house call to him. He was already famous before he went to this guy's house. So uh, he went to his house, and they told the, the patient told uh, the doctor, uh, I, I think I'm dying. And the doctor said, you're probably right. But he found him sweating, very alert, uh, having severe chest pain and some shortness of breath, but able to talk. Uh, so let's see what happened next is he just comforted him and, and he told him to pray. This is true. And they did, and he died a few hours later at home. So he had an autopsy uh, with a lot of medical, at a university, a lot of med students there, and they found a, uh, a four, five centimeter tear in his distal left esophagus with a pleural fluid. Uh, peritoneal fluid, and they found pieces of duck, which he'd eaten, in his pleura and his abdominal cavity. And all the members there, uh, that described, this is well described in a case report in 1724 by Dr. Borhoff, and he wrote the details of how all the med students and other doctors were sticking their, their fingers through the hole in the esophagus, just, like, oh, wow, wow, sick, without any gloves on, okay? <laughs> I don't know how that didn't get in this handout here. I, I had this on another slide. So that, so that was Herman, Herman Borhov. Is, I wonder if they have that later. Shoot. Oh, I guess he got it out of here for some reason. Um, Herman Borhov was a professor of medicine at, uh, in, Nether in the Netherlands. He was already famous. I had a picture of his house I was going to show too. But uh, uh, that they, uh, they, he described... So Borhoff syndrome is, what is Borhoff syndrome? Because it's a very rare cause of mediastinitis in, in nowadays. There's much more common causes. So it's only when you have a ruptured esophagus, it's, it's in the distal esophagus too, with violent vomiting. Okay? And it usually presents with severe pain, shortness of breath, tachycardia, probably hypotension, sweating. The x-ray of the chest usually shows a pleural effusion on the left side initially, if you get there early enough. 
um, and you'll find that there's a there's a, a tear in the left side of the distal esophagus. It usually it's not at the GE junction, but a little above it. Okay, and it's not due to a perforation by a bone. That's a different entity. Okay, so it's just from violent vomiting. Turns out that is extremely rare nowadays in the United States. There's many there's many more other common more common causes of mediastinitis which you're going to miss. Uh, fortunately, all the other kinds are rare too. They're just much more rare. So let's look at the anatomy of the mediastinum. Um, yeah, so, so esophageal perforation spontaneous from vomiting is Warhoff syndrome. Okay, contiguous spread from oropharyngeal fossa. I'm going to show how that can occur. So you can have an abscess in your throat, retropharyngeal or peripharyngeal or, or peritonsor. Actually, there's various fascial planes that the infection can spread down into the mediastinum, which has different compartments. And different, the different uh, compartments can be different so that you can only have a posterior compartment involved. And so you never have, have chest pain, you just have back pain. Okay, I'll show you some examples. The most common cause now of acute bacterial mediastinitis, it occurs after cardiac surgery. But it's after they've gone home, but within a week or two. So they come back to the ED, and they have acute bacterial mediastinitis, but they have all different kind of symptoms. It's like low grade, may not have any fever. All they have, they may have no pain or little pain, a fever, a white count. The chest X-ray and the CAT scan are useless because they've already had their surgery on the mediastinum. And so the only doctor that can tell you that they don't have or do have mediastinitis is the cardiothoracic surgeon. The other kind is the other's most common kind, which is easy for us to diagnose, is they have iatrogenic esophageal perforation while undergoing endoscopy with sclerotherapy. So they usually poor protoplasm. There's cirrhosis with ascites and varices. So they're poor protoplasm. So the esophagus either gets perforated during the procedure and they get sick right away and come right to the ED, and the GI doctor says, I think I perforated them, or they did a little deeper uh, sclerotherapy than they thought, and they killed some of the esophagus, and it ruptures like 12 hours later after they're home. And that they would come in pretty sick, but their poor protoplasm, they may not be hard, may be hard to diagnose. That's easier to diagnose by, by CAT scan and chest X-ray than the other kind. That's probably the most common kind you're going to see in the ED nowadays is iatrogenic from a gastroenterologist in a patient who just had endoscopy. So look at the anatomy of the uh, of the mediastinum. There's many compartments, and I won't dwell on that slide here, but there's lots of various important structures in the mediastinum. Heart and great vessels, distal trachea and mainstem bronchi, esophagus, vagus nerves, phrenic nerves, thymus, thoracic duct, and they're all connected by lymph nodes and connective tissue and fat. Here's an example showing uh, the left and the right side, showing the, the mediastinum with all the structures. It goes from way back here to way out here. Some of these compartments may not actually uh, connect with each other. There's a posterior compartment here. So if you could present, you could have a retropharyngeal abscess here or infection there that spreads down this fascial plane. I'll mention what they are later, what the fascial planes are, causing posterior mediastinitis. It presents with back pain between the scapula. You could have uh, anterior mediastinitis, which is in front and beneath the heart, but does involve the great vessels. That's usually chest pain, sometimes epigastric pain, but it usually goes to the chest. Can also be superior mediastinum, mediastinitis, localized, and it's sort of like high in the sternum or on the lower neck. So there's always potential fascial uh, planes and potential spaces that connect the mediastinum to the head and neck. And it may go along many of these spaces. I'll show you an example. 
You could have a uh, infection up here that can go down. The super, there's all these superficial space, the pretracheal space, the retropharyngeal danger space, and free vertebral. I think I have a better diagram of this here, showing the back to the front. You could see the trachea, and these spaces are very like potential spaces, and they're really not really there unless something's going down them. But they're like the pleura or something that are together. So. Uh, an infection uh, can go down one space into one compartment and not all the compartments of the mediastinum. You don't really need to know all the anatomy there. But So let's look at uh, the most common cause you're probably going to see in the ED nowadays of acute mediastinitis is after, uh, after uh, endoscopy. And it may occur right at the time, so they sent right over, or it may occur a few hours after they went home, and then they come back really sick. And these people have a pretty bad, bad outcome because they're already like protoplasm with cirrhosis. Uh, it can also occur from a cancer, can present with a cancer that perforated uh, without having any endoscopy. And then the most common cause is cardiothoracic surgery. UCI doesn't do very much cardiothoracic surgery compared to some places, and so we don't see much of it here. Um, so if you're at a place like the Cleveland Clinic or something, or pay, pay with thousands of procedures every year, uh, they probably see it and they diagnose it. But it really, I'll show you later, it can hardly ever be diagnosed by anything except an operation, and they usually just give antibiotics. Uh, so head and neck infections are a rare cause today because usually when you get an upper air, airway infection or abscess, it gets drained or it gets antibiotics. But in the pre-antibiotic era, it was common to have these abscesses up here that would end up causing mediastinitis, and the patient would die of it later. Um, you can have an infection at another site, sometimes the pancreatitis or the pancreatic pseudocyst infected can actually go with the mediastinum. Sometimes you could get osteo of the sternum, which would cause mediastinitis too. So uh, turns out the bacteriology of mediastinitis from cardiovascular surgery is much different than any other cause. So it's usually it would in uh, cardiovascular surgery, it's usually staph aureus and epidermidis, and even MRSA, or highly resistant hospital-acquired bacteria. Whereas in the head and neck source, it's usually anaerobes, normal flora, or some gram-negative bacilli. And then if you have a head and neck source, you usually present with pain, fever, and swelling at the, at the source in the head and neck. Chest pain, respiratory distress, dysphagia, crepitus, tachycardia, Hammond's sign, and sepsis. Anybody know what Hammond's sign is or Hammond's crunch? It's hard to ever hear that in the ED. It's too noisy. But, um, it's kind of like crepitus. Well, it's something you have to hear. Sometimes it's opposed to crepitus, like feeling it. So some patients will come in saying they hear it at home. Uh, it also can be seen, though, not just in pneumomediastinum, which is characteristic here, but also seen in small left pneumothorus. Correct. So uh, it was described by Lewis Hammond, a John Hopkins uh, pulmonary specialist, in 1937. And he subsequently described it in, in patients with small left pneumothorax, uh, as in addition to mediastinitis with pneumomediastinum, and described as a sort of a raspy sound whistling sometimes that occurs if you're listening in the left articubus position over the lower left sternal area it occurs with changes in the in the heartbeat not with not with breathing okay and uh, in those days they were able to before they did an x-ray on a patient they sometimes could he could diagnose a small left pneumothorax in a patient by the by the Hammond sign uh, and they get an, they get X-rays when he was you know they, and then the X-ray would show it so small left pneumothorax meaning the air they showed examples with Hammond's article that the air in the X-rays was right next to the mediastinum it wasn't a distal or up apical pneumothorax 
Uh, I don't think we can ever hear that in the ED. We don't listen to the heart long enough and it's too noisy. Uh, anterior mediastinitis can present with pain in the neck or the substernal region, but posterior mediastinitis may not have any chest pain. And the labs usually show leukocytosis or a left shift. X-rays, I'll show a few X-rays here. Get mediastinal widening, pneumoperitoneum, pleural effusions. You may have air fluid levels in the mediastinum. Uh, a lot of these things are normal after cardiothoracic surgery, too. So it definitely doesn't help you to get an X-ray or a CAT scan. Uh, here's an example of a man who presented with burning substernal pain, had a barium esophagram showing a perforated distal esophagus. I think he might have had a bone in there. There's a CAT scan showing also has a chest tube in now. That's a chest tube showing mediastinal gas there. Here's an example of a uh, woman with a head presented with foreign body sensation, dysphagia, adenophyta, and drooling. She had a barium esophagram. Um, remember, it's not good to get barium in your mediastinum. You want water-soluble contrast. So they use barium, but there's a chicken bone perforating her distal esophagus. And here's an example. This is a scalp film from a CT scan of the chest showing widening of the mediastinum. This is actually uh, inhalational anthrax, but, you, but it's sort of similar to what you might see from bacterial mediastinitis. Uh, good quality x-ray might show widening the mediastinum. I have a quick question. Yeah. So in RED, sometimes we have people where like G-tube falls out. You push G-tube back in, and I go in there, and they take a, I push contrast, they shoot metrate. Can you, because we don't have radiologists that do um, esophagrams here, really, or whatever you call them. Yeah, we do. Can I just have the patient swallow contrast and have the guy shoot their care right away? The Omnipack, you know? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, the, what I do, what, if I have a patient at, if we have radiologists in the daytime who'll do barium esophagrams or water-soluble contrast. So at night, what you can do is sometimes you get the radiology attending who works till midnight to do it. They need fluoroscopy license, that's the thing. So if they're not available, so you have them go over, to, walk over to chest x-ray. They're standing there ready for their PA, and they drink water-soluble contrast, and they take a PA x-ray like seconds later. And you often, usually I do it for meat impaction. Then you see there's a meat impaction, or you don't see anything, and it goes through. So you could do... Uh, water-soluble contrast, like we do for the CT scans, and they have to drink it while they're getting the x They drink it, and they get the x-ray like seconds later. And that's useful. It might be useful. A CAT scan is probably better. So CT scan. So the best radiology for these mediastinitis is contrast esophagus, uh, if you expect the esophagus, water-soluble agent, or CT scan of the chest. And with CT surgery patients, the, seat, the chest looks really bad no matter what, and so even there is air in there, it doesn't help you. Only the CT surgeon can tell. So really, CT surgery uh, is a different entity. And so chest x-ray and CTs are of little use. Uh, for mediastinitis, it's really uh, pretty much fatal unless you treat it with aggressive therapy. It doesn't always require surgery, though. IV antibiotics. Um, Sometimes they need surgery repair of the tear in the esophagus. Sometimes they repair you go in thoracoscopically through the pleural area and aggressive surgical drainage sometimes. And the complications include you get pericardial effusion and tamponade, including bacterial pericarditis, empyemas, peritonitis, and you can even get sternal osteo. So key points about mediastinitis here, it's rare, except after cardiac surgery. But I think at our facility, we're probably more likely to see it uh, after esophageal perforation from a GI doctor. Presentation could be subtle to severe. It's difficult to diagnose that they may not all have chest pain. They may have back pain, intrascapular pain, or epigastric pain going to the back. And if there's no predisposing cause, you could consider anthrax. 
which is still not likely nowadays. Uh, diagnosis, a lateral chest x-ray is better than a PA, so you want a good quality x-ray. 